I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. And I'm Jeff Roberts. And this is GM GM from from Decrypt. Okay, Jeff, today we got John Wu of Avalanche, I should say, of Ava Labs. GM Dan, yeah, this is going to be a fun one for me because there's all these chains out there and we all know something about all of them. But Avalanche, I confess, I don't know a ton about. It's got the academic pedigree. I think it's quite popular with a lot of people. Uh, they seem nice. They're top 10, uh, they're top 10 tokens. So I'm really curious what he's going to have to say. Yeah, and I think they've made a lot of noise recently. I mean that in a good way. Now, of course, how much of that is marketing spend? But boy, they had their big Avalanche Summit in Barcelona. And then just a couple days later, I saw John give the keynote address at the Harvard Blockchain Conference in Boston. Of course, he's an HBS alum. And then I was on the way home on my train to Connecticut, and there was an Avalanche ad on the train. And I was thinking, woof, they're everywhere. And you know, some of that is advertising, but they definitely have, have made a lot of noise in the space in the last year. And as you said, AVAX, top 10 token. Yeah, they're in it to win it for sure. And the other interesting thing about them, they don't seem to make a lot of mistakes. Like I can't remember too many like crack ups compared to some of the other blockchains. We'll have to figure out what their, uh, their secret mm. sauce is. Yeah, just you wait, right? Every <laughs> blockchain has had their sudden outage. And then of course, it's always interesting, like, you know, for, for non-crypto natives to understand, there's the blockchain itself, and they want to say we're decentralized. So that's why a lot of these projects have a separate arm called something labs. You know, Stacks has this, Ethereum Foundation. And so he's Ava Labs, but, you know, a co-founder of, of Avalanche. So, you know, I want to ask him especially about how it always gets framed as, ooh, Ethereum challenger, Ethereum competitor. I imagine uh, that Avalanche, like Solana, is probably sick of hearing that. Yeah, well, let's find out. Let's uh, let's bring on Avalanche's John Wu. All right, let's do it. Okay, John Wu, Ava Labs, GM. Welcome. Dan, I'm looking forward to this. Hi, Jeff. John, thanks for joining us. So let's dive in this way. How do you explain what Avalanche is and does to a normie, uh, a crypto newcomer, you know, who maybe still doesn't even really understand the concept of blockchains. A lot of times we hear people talk about the blockchain. And I often say, when you hear someone say that, you know that they don't know that there are multiple blockchains. How do you uh, give the 101 on Avalanche? That's actually a very good question because the 101 is so different for everyone because everyone's at a different level right now these days. It's a lot different from literally three or four years ago where it was like you didn't know or you knew and people are just migrating into it. But the simple intro for Avalanche is it's a next generation blockchain. It's Ethereum compatible. It has actually more transactions on a daily basis than Ethereum. And it's got speed and scale that Ethereum 2.0 hopes to get. And, you know, a couple mentions in there of Ethereum. Do you get tired at this point of the frequent framing of Ethereum competitor, Ethereum killer? I mean, you guys want to be, I imagine, framed as as a lot more than that. And yet that kind of persists for now. People define a lot of these other blockchains in terms of Ethereum. We hate that. 
we don't consider ourselves an Ethereum competitor. I think one thing about Avalanche and the people at Ava Labs who are the software and services team behind Avalanche think is we are going into a multi-chain world going forward. And also there's too much of this us versus them in this space. In my opinion, I came from, you know, tech investing in traditional finance. The, the size of blockchain and crypto right now is so small, whether it's in terms of number of developers or market cap in the tokens to the opportunity that it can be. I mean, there's probably like, you know, less than a million full-time dedicated devs in the space, a lot less than a million. And there's like 7 million on Android alone and 4 million on, on iOS. So, and God knows how many on web. So I think we like to think that it's like building the market for everyone. But when you asked what's the easiest way to explain someone, it's always easier to make a comparison to someone who's done so well. And Ethereum's done a great job. Yeah, John, just sticking with the like uh, Avalanche 101 stuff for a second, um, my dealings with it, I think you have a bit of a reputation for being a little more academic. I've uh, had the good fortune to speak with Emin Gunsur a couple times for my book, very smart guy, Cornell professor, of course. So your regard is a little more kind of corporate and academic than some of the other projects. But what is sort of the secret sauce of Avalanche that differentiates you from the Solanas or the Cardanos or the Cosmoses or this or that, the other layer ones out there? So there's a couple of things. And I think you first mentioned Eamon Gunsir, the Cornell professor, who was the visionary founder behind Avalanche. That We start there because he has been in this space actually far longer than people realize. And in fact, I've read things that he's the second most quoted person other than the group of Satoshi or, or Satoshi himself in terms of his published work. So it starts there, which is he's an innovative person, visionary thinker. He's also very scientific. He noticed what was, just like Ethereum built upon Bitcoin and made programmability capable on the blockchain, he recognized way ahead of the time that there are certain things that could be improved on Ethereum, and he figured out that we need to start with the whole new consensus protocol. So first it's the people and started with Gun, and then he realized that the architecture of Avalanche has to start at the consensus protocol in order to achieve the trilemma. So the consensus protocol is the first point of differentiation for Avalanche. It is another layer, a, a, a third paradigm, if you will, in terms of consensus protocols. The first was the classical protocol, and that's been around for 40 years, since the 70s. It's part of distributed systems computing, and that's what Gunz, you know, uh, was a professor in. And then came the Satoshi Nakamoto protocol, and that was an improvement upon the classical and the random sampling methodology of Avalanche is, we think, is a whole new level. Then the second thing that makes it special and gives it a difference is the architecture itself. So the architecture lends itself to things like what we call a subnet. And the subnet, it allows Avalanche to scale horizontally as opposed to most other first layers, like you mentioned, the ones you mentioned, which are mostly vertical scaling. And John, I mean, you know, you could probably tell we get fascinated with narratives and the reputation of various chains and projects. I think that tends to be interesting. And it it sometimes has an even bigger role on, say, price movement than the actual underlying tech and how successful it is in terms of adoption. So uh, let me ask you about the token, AVAX. Do you feel like 
you know, there's good and bad that comes with that, with having a token be such a prominent part. It's high up in the rankings of all the coins and tokens right now in the crypto market. And how much do you pay attention to, you know, day-to-day price? So for my seat, that's the easiest one. I try not to pay attention to the day-to-day price. And the operative words are try, obviously. (laughs) But we're operators, we're builders. We care about, you know, adoption on the chain. We care about user experience. And we care about, you know, dApps and developers coming to the ecosystem. If you spend too much money, time worrying about the price of it, and I was a a fund manager, so I know that as well from back then, the the more you stare at the screens, the less effective you are doing your jobs, frankly. When I was a young person at one of these funds I used to work at, the boss actually turned off Bloomberg for all the young kids so they can focus on investing (laughs) and, and analyzing. So it's the same with us. That's a great tidbit, John. Yeah, I, I, I like that, the, the crack terminal. But I've just got sort of a personal question. We'll get into the subnets and all the, you know, that good stuff in a second. But your own background is quite traditional finance. I mean, Cornell Management, Harvard Business School, managing funds. How did you come to crypto? Do you remember your first moment kind of discovering crypto? How did it go? Which, which coin was it? Yeah, so I hope uh, Dan doesn't mind hearing this story again, because I know Dan already knows this. But it was in Bitcoin. And I was a skeptic at first. Uh, it was going up in 12 and 13, and, and I really didn't understand it, but I was a tech investor, so it's my job to look at all emerging technologies. And in general, I was pretty early to a lot of underlying trends, but the crypto blockchain Bitcoin trend in the early 2010s, I didn't get right away. I was looking at Bitcoin purely as where's the utility? How do I look at this from a DCF perspective, and how do I fit this into normal business you know, framework as to evaluating modes of a business and suppliers and and customers. It was not until 2014 that I realized that I should look at this differently as more of a Bitcoin. It was just Bitcoin back then. This is even before Ethereum popped up. I should look at it as more of a supply demand, an incremental supply and demand, like a commodity or a currency. And once I actually did the math, because you can figure out and make assumptions as to the number of Bitcoin that gets mined or incremental supply a day, multiply by the price. And then you can do the research at the time to track wallets, addresses, and make assumptions of how big, how much money was in each one of these wallets. It was clear to me that the incremental demand far outstripped the incremental supply. So that was my first foray into it, just purely as like, hey, I think I don't really understand it. But from a supply and demand perspective, this thing is going higher. So I need hang to on, hang on though. Key question: Did you buy some back then? Oh, of course. I, the, the The real question is: Did you buy enough? And the answer is never <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. So the answer is no, but it, it's never yes because you know you you enter it and you discover it. And this is the great thing about crypto. Even today, it's like with very little money, anyone can participate and go into a DeFi ecosystem. There is no way to get more conviction and learn about something than actually doing and using. And in traditional tech, unless it's very social media oriented and whether, you know, if it's software or other things, it's really hard to just go and try it out before you actually want to purchase something. So I did. And then the next big aha moment was 2017 when I saw actual utility from the ICO boom. I had my thoughts on the ICO boom. I thought, you know, in the U.S., having been a traditional alternatives asset manager, that all those raises were illegal because of you know, Securities Acts in 1933 and 34. But I had this unbelievable revolution in my own mind, at least, 
that I can change the world of finance, how IPOs are done, how private companies can raise money, how we can provide more access to individuals of private shares. So for me personally, I was investing in private shares. My friends at previous funds I worked at would sell me SPVs at the best private companies at the time, like Airbnb or Lyft or something. And then they would charge me 110 where I found these, you know, platforms where they had secondary shares from com- common shares usually, where you can go buy it direct. And I figure, well, if I can figure out a way to use this ICO mechanism, tokenize these and call them a security token, I can solve some issues in the private securities and provide more access to everyone and do it in a regulatory compliant way. So I became CEO of the Digital Assets Group at Shares Post. This then took me to actually working a lot with the SEC. We had an ATS. We did a change of membership agreement of that to make it compliant for STOs. We were successful from a reg tech perspective, but from a commercial perspective, we were, you know, there was just not enough demand. There was a lot of adverse selection for this. If you were one of those companies, you still just walk down to Sand Hill Road and raise as much money as you want. But also, I, what I learned, though, was that from a technology perspective, it was not doable. If I were to really be successful and do a IPO the size of a regular public IPO, the cost and the lack of scale on you know the public blockchain at the time would have been as expensive as giving Goldman Sachs five or six percent to go do a roadshow for you. So it took out a lot of the competitive advantage. So this ties all back to Ava Labs and Avalanche. I had already been with Eamon Gunsir or Gun I affectionately call. Uh, two of us were the the on the board of the Cornell Blockchain Club at Cornell University. He was the faculty. Uh, advisor and I was the outside advisor. And we have been doing that since 2016 or 17. So this led to, wow, Ava Labs, Avalanche is the solution for the scale and the speed and decentralization that is required. That was, you know, 19, 2020, 2019. We were 10 people in the room here in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And I'm happy to say today we're close to 170. Woof. And John, I mean, there's so much there. We're, we're going to want to ask you further about the SEC stuff, but there's something you said there about how easy it is for people to try it out. And even with just a tiny amount of money, that's true. And I think not true in some ways, because I often talk about how in terms of the DeFi part, you know, if you want to just go on an exchange, a centralized exchange and, and buy some Bitcoin or ETH, fine, or AVAX. But in terms of trying out DeFi protocols, I mean, I think it's still pretty thorny for non-tech savvy people. And I'm curious your take on whether it'll get better and, and how quickly. I mean, even when people, you know, friends will say to me, I'm ready to buy an NFT. I want to try to buy an NFT. I say, okay, here's what you got to do. And then even as I'm describing it, I think, Ugh, this sounds like a lot of steps. It's like, well, go on an exchange, buy some ETH, then put it in your MetaMask wallet, then go to the NFT site. Sometimes they're going to make you change it into wrapped ETH. It's like, it's too many things. Go to the Polygon network and yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's I, a nightmare. It's, so for the record, this is uh, just a conversation and nothing was set up, but you're almost like laying it off for, for us. So at our summit, we just, <laughs> just had our avalanche you know, Barcelona Summit. It was just incredible event with uh, close to 4,000 people showing up. One of the things that we announced that we will be launching shortly is what we call our wallet. And it's easy to say that because people think of MetaMask as a wallet. So it's easier to say it that way. But really what it is, is providing a much easier experience so that more people who you know, effectively like my mom or my grandmother would be able to easily interact in a way that is more like a Schwab account. 
or you know, in professional in traditional finance, people call these things for um, RIAs like TAMPS, you know, turnkey asset management platform or something. So you can do all of these things. And so that's where we want to take it to help increase the adoption of the space. But I guess to your question, yes, I think there's a lot of crypto native people who are very used to the current way of doing things. But if we really want to expand the market and and get some of the more normies in or some of the people who are not used to doing it this way, they, they don't have time to learn it. They, they want ease of use. If you look at the wallets that exist that interface with more traditional people, whether it's PayPal or Square, now those things to the user seem like it's smooth as silk. And the back end underneath, it is far from that. There's a lot of things happening behind the scenes to give you the appearance that you have instant settlement. It is far from that. So we're hoping that with our products at Alva Labs, at some point in the near future, you're going to get step by step closer and closer so that people can actually have that similar experience, but really get stuff under the hood to match the, the silky smoothness of the experience itself. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, I know uh, there's uh, MetaMask has a lot of fans, and I've kind of grudgingly got used to it, but it is not smooth as silk, I'll say that. But I'm curious, though, this idea of an, yet another wallet I find sort of intimidating because it seems the blockchain landscape's already quite fractured. I know Solana's doing cool stuff over here with its platforms, and there's you know these other things. The, the wallet that Avalanche is going to launch how universal will it be, you know, or is it just going to be for one sort of like, you know, sort of silo or walled garden to go there, then you have to get your MetaMask, then you'll have to get your Solana wallet and on and on. So what's, where are we? With so, that? so what you're describing, Jeff, doesn't make life easier. If you had to like go to Avalanche or work on Avalanche is wallet, and then you have to, if you want to move something to Ethereum, you have to go switch off and deposit things and go to MetaMask and do it over there. And then if you want to go to Solana, you have to do the Phantom, like, and it just makes everything actually harder. Over time, hopefully we'll solve all of that in one centralized wallet so that it can do a lot of that functionality for you. This is the goal for this wallet. In the near term, this wallet is going to provide Avalanche users a better experience on Avalanche than perhaps other wallets can provide on Avalanche. You know, obviously, if the team Avalabs developing this wallet knows Avalanche better than anyone else, that's step one. And step two, MetaMask was done for Ethereum. There's different speed, different things related to it. So part of the issues you see in MetaMask on Avalanche is the difference in speed because it's kind of like waiting, waiting, waiting. And then sometimes it's just like, just like when you're in the old days, when you're doing dial up on a browser, it just somehow it just breaks when it keeps waiting, waiting, waiting. So it's got to match the speed up and the functionality has to work a little bit better just because it's going to be on Avalanche. 
And I'm going to ask kind of for, for some listeners, probably a dumb technical question, but I'm curious. I know that Avalanche is what they call EVM. And it's compatible with Ethereum's virtual machine. So it kind of plays nicely with that. But Solana does not, and nor do some of the other ones. So technically, is it possible to build a wallet that's compatible with all those things? And would one wallet backed by you know a given chain even want to do that? Yeah. That, so there's two questions there. Is it possible? Well, EVM-compatible wallets will be a lot easier to do. If someone wants to build the integration into a Rust-based environment or a Solana, it's possible, but that'll be another lift. And the thing about crypto is things are done in iteration and done over time as opposed to a fully fitted, perfect product that's been tested a, you know, a thousand times before it gets rolled out. And then I think your second question is, does anyone actually want to have that full responsibility of doing all of that? I think that is the goal. Someone should do that at some point. Maybe it will be on the labs doing it, maybe someone else. But if you really want to create adoption, you kind of need that, especially if we think it's going to be a multi-chain world. Yeah. And speaking of a multi-chain world, I mean, one thing we're dancing around, John, is there's still maximalism out there, right? I mean, you know, you talked about your great event in Barcelona and all the, you know, Avalanche people went to that. There was Solana in Lisbon, Breakpoint, you know, that was, they would say that was a big success. There was ETH Denver for all the ETH folks. And so there are these specialized conferences. It feels like a conference or event every week now. And you've got the, you know, fanatics and the passionate base. But then, you know, there are a lot of people talking about interoperability. What do you make of the remaining, and maybe it's getting better, but the kind of tribalism in crypto? There's the, the Bitcoin only folks. There's, you know, Ethereum's all that matters. Where do you see that going and, and can everyone eventually kind of play nicely? I think it's, well, first of all, that is, you, you've described the situation very eloquently. And the reason that exists is because the, the nascent stage of the industry. And back in the you know, early internet days, I remember the search engines, you know, each one was very tribal as well. Yahoo versus Lycos versus Excite versus uh, Ask Jeeves. I'm just trying to like list them off on top of my head now. And probably was not as tribal as as crypto. But I remember in that period as an investor, how like if you go talk to one group, they would just like crap on someone else and someone else crap on someone else. You know, so it's one reflection of how nascent the industry is. And in crypto's case, it's not necessarily a good thing in the long run. But for now, it's not a bad thing because it reflects how much passion people have for what they're doing and for their native whatever chain it is and how they so much believe in that. And in a nascent industry, you need that, you know, unbelievable conviction. You know, when I was an investor, when I looked at entrepreneurs to invest in, in early stage ventures, not later stage ventures, in early stage, you know, founder type, I almost wanted to see that stubbornness and that, you know, just hardcore belief because- mm-hmm. If your journey starts today and it's going to be a long journey, if you're not starting at that point, you're going to get jaded really quickly and you'll never make it. So I think to summarize, one, it's a reflection of how early the industry is. And two, on the surface level, it's not a great thing to be so tribal, but I think you almost need it in order to have success. 
Yeah, speaking of nascent industries, John, the other thing nascent industries are subject to is regulation. And there's a lot of that going around with our, our good friend, SEC Commissioner Gary Gensler, not a very popular guy in the industry. But I'm kind of curious, how much of your time do you spend worrying about this? And what's going to happen? Like, how is this all going to get shaken out? I know the sort of the official line is, yes, we believe in regulation, we comply with regulators, blah, blah, blah. But like, I mean, just cut through some of this for us and say, you know, what's it going to look like in a year or two? How worried should these projects be out there? So it's a lucky I'm a fan of your podcast. And I think you had uh, this question was asked of Kate and Long as well. And I think she answered it very eloquently, which is like, I think most people who are operators in the industry today really do believe in some sort of sensible, fair regulation. But there are still those, you know, early day guys, those, you know, initial libertarians or very crypto native guys who are still longing for no regulation. And I think it was even Dan that said, that's just a pipe dream at this point. So I actually think once there is regulation, as long as there's certainty, you're going to see another level of growth in the space. There's just a lot of, you know, my hope, okay, I'm not going to predict anything, but my hope would be that we have some sensible regulation here and we can get the innovators back onshore and we have the best capital markets for this onshore. If why are we so innovative as a country? Why has so much been done that's so good that's changed the world? It's because this country has is where the capital markets are. The investing feeds the innovation. So that's what I hope comes out of this. And in terms of how I handle it, I definitely think about it. And we have great a team of, you know, our general counsel and his team are great. We we do have active dialogue with the, the right people and we're part of different associations. So we have a seat at the table and hopefully we can be helpful in um, creating sensible regulation. Yeah, I like that take. John, two kind of questions for you about technical things happening right now on Avalanche. And, you know, one I think allows us to talk more about the culture. The other is a little technical. So first, and, and both of these come from recent decrypt stories. And I'm, I'm thinking about how a normie would, would see this headline just, you know, so this says wildlife's hit mobile game Castle Crush to add Avalanche NFTs. And, you know, gaming and NFTs is such a hot topic right now. And every time a game studio announces we're doing NFTs, people get angry. I mean, the NFT vitriol is remarkable. So talk to us a little bit about the growth of NFTs on Avalanche and your take on how they'll play into gaming and and why some people just hate them. (laughs) (laughs) That's three questions there. I I guess why some people hate, I go backwards because I'll probably forget the first one. So let me just go with the ones I remember. Why people hate NFTs? That was one question. I don't know if you really want to ask that, but you did ask that. I just feel like people don't really think digital collectibles are a thing. They're not looking at it as potentially something that can lead to disintermediation of business models. So entertainers can capture more secondary ticket sales or a better form of loyalty and engagement with fans. They just think of it as like, well, I can just copy that in a GIF and show it. So any digital collectible is just nonsense. And I think that's probably why they hate it. In fairness, there's frothy valuations for a lot of these NFTs. But, you know, again, like I think they try to use an old construct like what art was and compare it to here. And for some reason, it's a, a print in art is different from like a GIF in a NFT to them. Or like a fake or a copy is different from a GIF, I guess, probably because in their minds, it's just so easy to create, you know, these JPEG files and just take pictures of them or whatever and recreate it and show it off. So 
I think that's why they hate it. They're not thinking about it as what it can lead to in terms of disintermediation in business models as a whole. And then in terms of GameFi or gaming and how that applies to NFTs, I think, you know, GameFi, which is really exploding right now, obviously is like the intersection of decentralized finance and NFTs all in one. And that makes the experience actually a lot better. Suddenly, instead of like choosing the character they give you in a game and you've got to sit with that, you can bring your own NFT and almost like create your own character that is uniquely you. And then you can use that character to continue to grow and then, you know, be equivalent like, okay, so you get this powerful character, but the character has to rest. So you lend out the character's axe so someone else uses, and then you can still collect points and make your character stronger. So there are some pretty cool game innovations, I guess, in-game innovations, where the industry in terms of gaming and game five has to grow is that it's still not the same level of gameplay as a AAA publisher's games. You know, what, what people are attractive to is the incentive mechanism and growing a character or growing, you know, rewards and stuff like that. So it's a it's like a nice little new creation, but it's definitely not the gameplay yet. Yeah, Jeff has written a, a great column or maybe even a couple columns about the problems with Axie. And, you know, if Axie Infinity is the representative of NFT gaming, well, it's not that fun of a game to play, but it's certainly interesting for the incentives. The other uh, technical avalanche question I wanted to ask you, John, is about subnets. And we had a smart piece run about, you know, avalanche subnets that are launching soon or have sort of come out in, in beta. These are kind of almost like playgrounds where people can test things out. Tell us a little bit about why that matters and, and why that's uh, helpful for the ecosystem. Oh, yeah. I mean, so gaming projects in subnets is about to explode. There's already a, like close to 10 that's doing subnets on avalanche. It, games in general, especially game five games, there's gazillion transactions. So those transactions eat up the chain's capacity in some sense. So when you have a subnet on Avalanche, it's you have the consensus protocol and security of Avalanche, the, the protocol, but it's its own execution environment. And it's it doesn't get affect if someone else is doing something, it won't affect your speed or timing in your subnet. So it's almost like your own chain. It is your own chain basically. And allows the it's great for developers, not only because of the speed of the transactions, you can really do it at the at, at real time, but basically they're like able to worry about what they want to do, which is to create, you know, great gameplay instead of the underlying infrastructure substrate they have to worry about or worry about security, or it's almost like a blockchain as a service. You know, we hand them SDKs for their their desired type of environment based on, you know if it's a game or it's an institutional subnet or something, and, and then they can um, go ahead and just worry about what their business is instead of worrying about building the underlying architecture. Wow, that's a lot to get your head around, but very cool. I'm seeing a lot about it. John, I want to go back to something you said earlier about just the evolution of like the blockchain crypto economy versus the old line finance one. You referred to sort of back in the day, you'd have to go to Sand Hill Road and ask the VCs for some money and then maybe they'd give it to you and do your Series A, Series B. It's a lot more freewheeling now. However, it seems in some ways things have not changed, namely that 
that there are some very rich venture capitalists who own most of the tokens and people come in to buy them and then they get hosed because the VCs dump the tokens and the average sort of fans lose out. And you know, I'm, I don't want to single out Andreessen Horowitz because I know people there and some very smart people and I think Chris Dixon's threads in Web3 are brilliant. But I mean, they are a rich VC firm literally on Sand Hill Road. I know they're one of your investors. So just you know, tell me, like, are things really any different than how they used to be? Well, Andreessen's been a great partner. And I don't think they are the classic name when people bring up uh, VC dumps, if you will. And the effectively what you're implying here is that these VCs get tokens and then they sell it early to the retail or before, you know, before others get to sell it, similar to an IPO process where all of a sudden you come in in the prior rounds and you're effectively selling it to the public in the retail on the IPO. Just the time time horizon is a lot shorter in in crypto than it would be in a traditional, you know, private equity to IPO type of situation. So it's something that's very important, but also the uh, chains themselves have something to say and do about this. And and what I mean by that is, you don't have as much of that on Avalanche. Part of it is because the pyramid for early investing into a lot of these projects has actually been inverted. You know, the way you described the, the flow of, of activity earlier was, you know, entrepreneurs going to Sand Hill Road, getting funding, and then, you know, the, the VCs are able to sell before everyone else. Irony here in crypto now, especially with blockchains, that a lot of these chains have their own ecosystem funds. And the early stage applications go to the ecosystem fund of the chain before they go to outside VC. And the reason they do that is because the it's relationship capital with the ecosystem fund. The people there know the chain better, can help the applications integrate. They know, and because of the composability of the permissionless environment, they can actually introduce to other projects a lot easier. Than, and they can you know help really create partnerships. You can help them build community. The ecosystem funds invest in some of these to help them grow that community as well. So. Those are value adds that just a third-party VC cannot provide. So in, in crypto, it is changed a bit already. And then the key is to make sure that it's as decentralized in terms of the holdings of the tokens as much as possible with the right lockups for you know, VCs. That's interesting. So don't necessarily blame the VCs, especially if they're doing the right thing. You know, maybe look at the project leaders themselves and it's up to them to do a fair token allocation. Interesting. John, I think we're running out of time, but I want to close by asking if someone's sort of new to Avalanche or hearing this and want to kind of get their hands dirty in it, where do you direct them? What should they do to really kind of get hands on with Avalanche? I want to go back to that other question so we can do that. But in terms of Avalanche, I think a couple of things you want, if you really want to learn, there's like three or four things to do. One is to go to the website, avalabs.org. There's tons of material there, white papers, all that stuff that you can read and learn about it. The second thing is, you know, my Twitter handles here, Guns and other people, it's available. There's constantly good content in a more real-time basis on, on Twitter. There's chat rooms and forums, whether it's, you know, on uh, Discord or other groups, or other platforms, you can check it out. And lastly, I think the most and best thing is do something. Go Coinbase. You know, Dan highlighted one path, you know, go to Coinbase and just own some and then figure our way into MetaMask and then get into the ecosystem and try things. Or if you're our existing crypto user, 
convert and go through the avalanche bridge, the Ethereum avalanche bridge, and then go try things. Actually use it. Actually try it. Experience it. That's the best way. You know, people were doubters of why internet was so good or email so good until they actually tried it. Back to the earlier thing. I don't think it's just VCs and I don't think it's just the founders or the, you know, the first party guys of the application or the chains. It's a combination of all three. The whole community has to be aware of this and the community must be aware and self-policed that this does not happen. I think the ethos of all crypto from the very beginning to even now still is that it's more, it's, it's a more fair system. So it's everyone's responsible to self-police. It's VCs, it's the application developers, it's a change, it's everyone. John, I want to end this way. We, we didn't push you on this. I always like to try and put people on the spot and ask, uh, what's in their bags? You know, you talked about buying Bitcoin years ago. What else besides Bitcoin, AVAX? And then we talked about NFTs. Do you own any NFTs? I don't like to talk about bags, period. But I don't really sell, that's for sure. And anything I have, I really haven't sold. And NFTs, I have some because I think they're cool and they're fun. But it's not something that is like that valuable. It's just I like it. for per- It's no different from me my owning baseball cards when I was a kid, you know, has some value to myself knowing that I know these players and stuff. But I think, again, like this is a DIY type space. So everyone should be trying things. So we're not about to see you change your Twitter profile pic to abort it. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Good stuff. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us. Great chat. Check back in with you soon. We'll be keeping close tabs on everything you're up to. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. A lot of fun. This has been GM from Decrypt. I'm Dan Roberts. And I'm Jeff Roberts. GM is a Decrypt podcast produced by Red Rock Music. Our executive producer is Red Yoakum. Our associate producer is Emma Martins. And our audio engineer is Enrique Inahosa. For more from Decrypt, go to decrypt.co or download our mobile app. Subscribe and review us wherever you listen, and we'll meet you back here next time for more crypto conversation. GM. GM.